people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. say if someone offered you peace and happiness through all of eternity have a nice day meet joe young hi he's a man on a mission lisa wants to get married in the temple but i don't think i can afford it who just got an offer have you ever considered acting i got offered a part in a movie and it pays twenty thousand dollars he couldn't refuse what are you acting in it's uh, uh an action adventure porno Porno. But when things get out of control, I can't believe I'm doing this. He can't get out. You're gonna finish this film. You don't own me. You wanna bet I don't, punk? Without a fight. Ah, heck, criminy. Now he's becoming the superhero. Bye, bye. God bless. He was always meant to be. I'm Orgasmo. Gasmo. Did someone say my name? Now you're moron. Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. David Rogers. Oh, hey, I didn't slap my ass yet. Also back in the booth is Mr. Brad Jones. I'm the stunt cog. On a very special episode of the projection booth, we're confronting some some of our biggest fears and learning that maybe what we're running from is maybe we're just running from ourselves. Yes, of course, we are talking about Orgasmo, released in 1997. The film was directed by and stars Trey Parker. He plays Joe Young, a Mormon on a mission in the big bad city of Los Angeles, where he happens upon a porn shoot and gets recruited to play an adult superhero, the titular Orgasmo. We will be spoiling the film as we go along. So if you haven't seen Orgasmo yet and don't want anything ruined, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. So, Brad, when was the first time you saw Orgasmo and what did you think? I did not see it theatrically because it didn't come to theaters where I grew up, which was Springfield, Illinois. But I knew of it because big South Park and Trey Parker and Matt Stone fan. And so I had seen some advertisements for it, especially the news it got when it got hit with the NC-17 and then didn't hear about it for a little bit and caught it. It it wasn't that long after it had come out. So I had caught it on like HBO or Cinemax late at night when it was showing on there. And it was really late, too. It was like maybe one or two in the morning. But that was usually when I would be watching something that like my dad would have no interest in. <laughs> so I was like, oh, man, I've been wanting to see this since I first read about it in like Premiere magazine and really got a kick of it out of it. I, I've loved this movie ever since I saw it. How about you, David? 
yeah, uh, just like Brad, this did not play in my hometown, um, Barstow, California, which is a little podunk town in California. Uh, might as well be Arizona. Yeah, this is one I was interested in. Um, I don't know where I saw uh, something about it, um, but I, I read about it. We'll say like Yahoo movies or AOL movies, but uh, they gave it a very Sundancey description and the photo they chose for it looked like it was an indie drama. But I was like, but wait, this is from the South Park guys. How can that be? Um, but I did catch it um, when I was able to see it in the video store. I was like, oh, okay, now I clearly get by the cover what's going on here. It far exceeded my expectations. This is a movie I've watched time and time again. Um, it's it's a comfort movie. It's very quotable. Um, some quotes I won't say anymore. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, th this is a fun movie. Fun to watch by yourself. Fun to watch with friends. Um, you know, I've watched it with my wife a few times <laughs> over the years. Um, it is just one of those movies that's and easy to throw on and enjoy. So I actually managed to see this one theatrically, I guess when it came out in 98 and that was at the Royal Oak, uh, main art theater, which sadly is no longer there. Rob St. Mary talks about all the time. Cause he worked there for a little while and yeah, my wife and I went to see it and I was pretty big fan of South Park at the time, uh, was one of the lucky guys who got to see spirit of Christmas when it was kind of floating around on, uh, VHS for all those years and just absolutely love that. And, um, I, I somehow I'd seen your studio and you, the little short that Parker made about universal. And, um, I can't remember if I had seen time warped by this time or not, but I was a huge, huge fan and orgasmo did not disappoint. And yeah, this is also one that we quote quite a bit around here. I mean, anytime somebody says Jesus, the other one says where it is so much fucking fun. And I love how, I mean, it's kind of that ZAZ style of comedy, but just a little bit edgier than that. I can see why they were paired up with them with basketball, but this just, it, it lands in a different spot. And I love how it is so sincere throughout so much of it, but yet making fun of sincerity all at the same time, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. That is, that is something I get from it each time. You kind of forget despite its subject matter. It's very, it's actually a very sweet movie when at its core. It's, it's also, it's about a really sweet guy and he, he stays that way through, through the movie. And it does a really good job of kind of mimicking different genres. Like, Whereas there's there's parts even outside of the porn sequences, like there's parts that are still kind of acted and sort of shot that way. But then on the wildly opposite end of that spectrum, there's also stuff that's acted and shot like it is a religious movie, especially a Mormon one. Yeah, which is a thing. I don't know if the audience knows this, but there are Mormon films aplenty. I'm a huge fan of the podcast God Awful Movies, and they will have whole months of movies mormon month where they'll just talk about mormon films some of them are really fucking wild and i can see why trey parker has been kind of obsessed with mormonism obviously book of mormon the infamous mormon episode of south park it plays really well here and it exacerbates this whole fish out of water thing. So rather than just being a dude in the big bad city of Los Angeles slash Hollywood, it is this naive Mormon on his mission and then falling into, you know, not just Hollywood backstabbing, but then also 
porn plus crime. So I really love how he takes it and swings that pendulum even wider between the world of Joe Young and the world of Max Orbison. Oh, yeah. It's like a character you'd see in a movie like The RM or Mobsters and Mormons or something like that. And it's it works perfectly throwing him into this underground porn scene with humor you'd see appropriately with this, like in a trauma film. (laughs) And I love, too, that they're hiding the nudity. Joe never swears. I think the the closest he gets to a swear is when he says criminy at one point. And that's probably his lowest moment in the entire film is when he yells at his girlfriend slash fiance, Lisa, and drives her away, you know, to your point, like he's not drinking in a bar. He happens to yell criminy. And that's when (laughs) she, she has to draw the line and, and leave and then eventually get into trouble. The look on her face when he says it is like he just said the worst curse word imaginable. Oh. The, the next line to that is actually one that I quote often, which is in, don't go quoting Dickens in my apartment. Oh, my wife and I quote that. And I love that there's two Dickens quotes that then later on, Chota Boy does the God bless us, everyone. I guess it's kind of a holiday movie when you think about it. And strangely, there's a lot of Dickens throughout South Park, too. I mean, there was a whole episode that was... um uh, like Oliver Twist with a with a, a character, uh, they did wave the character ages ago. The British Pip. one, Pip. Yes, there were. I believe no, no. It wasn't. A, it wasn't. A, it was Great Expectations. Which is that Dickens? Yeah, that is. Or it's G R A T E Expectations by Edmund Wells. And I love Dean Bacar. I love like the the more dramatic Dean Bacar gets, the funnier he gets. Because when he when he does that with his voice, that's almost like this old Hollywood kind of dramatic acting that he does. And he's so sincere. Like when he, oh, one of my favorite parts when he flashes back to him and his dad, and he's talking about hamster style, and he's delivering this so awesomely dramatic like it is the worst most traumatic thing that's happened in his childhood and he is going for it like this is a hardcore family drama and the payoff of it where his dad couldn't care less (laughs) i can still smell that newspaper (laughs) (laughs) there's so many good parts of that joke one with dean bacar's like really dramatic delivery the flashback itself and trey parker is such a He's an underrated leading man, and he can he can get a laugh just from his expressions alone. And he does in that when he just has this what the hell look on his face when Dean Bacard has told him this story. It's like you wonder what he told him of the story, you know, like he's building it up so much. And then when they cut to the actual thing that happened and it's like, I, I agree with you, Dean uh, Bacard is a great actor. I actually met him a few times. He owned a video store in L.A., and I actually, I rented a copy of the first time I saw Freaks was I rented it from his video store and I, I double taked and I looked at him. I'm like, is that, is that Chota Boy? Is that, is that a little bitch? And I never, and I never had the balls to say like, Hey, a little bit, you know, cause like all these characters are kind of insulting. <laughs> and so like, I never had the balls to say like, Hey, little bitch, how's it going? Or, you know, Hey, Chota Boy. Uh, but no, he was a very nice guy. Um, you know, the few times I've been very, I mean. He is as short as he appears on film. I can say that. He commits to his roles, too. Like, my first... This is a very nostalgic movie for me, too. As most Trey Parker and Matt Stone movies are, like, my friends and I would watch this a lot. Uh, Same with Cannibal the Musical, and we would quote all of these, and Basketball as well. And 
whenever Dean Bacar would show up in something else, we would just cheer whenever it would happen. Same with the same with basketball when we saw that because we saw that after we saw Orgasmo and Cannibal. And even when he shows up in that, we're like, yes. And one of our friends in our group looks exactly like Dean Bacar. And in retrospect, I'm like, well, now I kind of feel bad because I'm pretty sure we said little bitch a few times. <laughs> Well, another another performance I'd like to point out, it's not, uh, you know, he doesn't get as much screen time, especially given how big he became with Trey Parker. But Matt Stone, just any anything he does in this movie, even if it's just in the background, kills me. Um, I, maybe they used just the right amount. I don't know if more would have, you know, uh, ruined it. But just anytime he's on screen kills me. And he, his line is one of the ones I used to quote often. Of course, now I'm a little more enlightened. I won't say it, that that line anymore. Um but, you know, that just killed the, you know, like, oh, unicorns are kick ass. He's great in this. When it would cut to him, I would get a laugh because he's one of those characters in this movie that in lesser hands would purely just be a one joke character and that's it. But like a lot of character side characters in this, they make it work either with the joke being added on to as it goes along and just his delivery on it and like something different would happen with a joke with him that would kind of take you by surprise. Like when he gets hit with the orgasm array and then just goes back into his conversation and little jokes that they add to it, like it cutting to the same footage basically of him watching the porn scenes. Him getting so excited. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, got a little excited. <laughs> that mullet that he's wearing. I mean, everything about his character is so well drawn. I love it. This is actually a great movie uh, to listen to on headphones because I- I'm sorry um, if I have to take away one point from this movie is it has a kind of a terrible sound mix if you're listening to it on in stereo. Um, but it's perfect with headphones. There's, there's a lot of jokes that I didn't hear for a long time that you put on headphones like, during the DVDA scene, they're like, oh, another day, another dollar. <laughs> or, hey, that's my ass. <laughs> but there's there's little jokes in the background that you almost miss. I was noticing that when I was watching it early, too. Like, stuff that... The, the kinds... I love these kind of jokes where it takes you a second. And no matter how many times you've seen a movie, you'll, you'll kind of forget about how good a certain joke was. Like, when his fiance is kidnapped at the end and she's got the tape over her mouth and then he walks in he has this fight scene and then he takes off his mask and you see that her like under her tape she goes as if she didn't know that was him until he takes that little mask off of his head the stupid joke of uh i was trying to tell you not to rip the tape off Or another one that kills me every time is um, the I, I can't remember the character's name, but, you know, one of the porn actresses, she says, oh, let's get really nasty and like tries to take her pop flips over backwards and you hear somebody back around. Oh, shit, she's dead. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that killed us earlier. And it's as much as I loved watching this movie, like with my friends, we were when we were in high school. And, and again, we still quote it to this day. It's the same with a lot of their other movies. It's great watching it now, too, because my wife also loves this movie and she was raised Mormon. So she can pick up on some little things that, like I wouldn't have noticed. Like uh, she'll say like, oh, yeah, a lot of Mormon families will have that painting in the background. Then she'll like, it's like the painting that's behind uh, his fiance whenever he calls. 
And but then she'll also pick up on some stuff like, well, I'm not sure that would happen outside of the basic plot of him being in a porn movie. Um, like she'll be sitting there going like, well, it is technically against the rules to visit your fiance when he's away on mission. <laughs> so like little things no one else would pick up on. My favorite really dumb joke is when Shota Boy is narrating and then when they get they're done with the narration and they get to his house. I'm glad you could come over for dinner, Joe. I'm really excited to show you my laboratory where I design things. I think you might find one thing in particular very interesting. Did you say something? Nah, I was just thinking. It's so stupid, but I just love it so much because again, it's like that super sincere thing. And especially like, you know, also making fun of filmmaking and tying two scenes together with a little bit of ADR, but acknowledging the ADR, which was very nice. I love Trey Parker to death. He is hilarious at ADR because it's a lot of it is you can usually be his voice on top of another character. And I love his voices when they even to this day, when they'll pop up in something as a character like you wouldn't even think there'd be another voice on top of it, let alone his. Like, I'll still laugh. Like, you saw it, you'd see it in Cannibal the Musical a lot as well, where suddenly someone in the background will have his voice. Yeah, he sprinkles in a lot. Like, I, I know I've in other characters, like, I've heard Mr. Garrison throughout uh, somewhere in there. And, uh, well, and T Rex, I mean, it's like a female Cartman, basically. <laughs> he changed it up just a little bit. Hey, guys, I'm ready to fudge. You're here to make me come. Even the orgasmatron itself, especially when it runs out of juice, it just sounds like him going. I love it when this happens in movies where it's kind of about a certain type of movie and or the making of a certain type of movie. And then it it becomes that. So, yeah, as the movie goes on and it, it does kind of become this orgasmo crime fighting movie. And even in the fake movies that they're making where they're really isn't any kind of sound effect really on the, the orgasmatron other than them just going rear, rear, or something like that when they shoot it and then yeah like you said when it when it does become the move the bait movie they're making even the sound effects they're using are kind of cheesy and the effects are as well like the burning mansion at the end i didn't realize until this watch that every single scene or in orgasmo in the in the movie within the movie they're shooting just one corner and they just dress it up differently each time. I don't know why it took me until this time watching it. So they just reset it. And, it, you know, also Orgasmo is supposed to be like number three number making movie of all time in the span of like two weeks. I don't know how long this, <laughs> the length of this movie is, but um, like they don't even bother upgrading the set at all. Just still that corner every time. Oh, yeah. Well, once you hit gold, I mean, super, yeah, super horny brothers, too. Oh, yeah, that's still use the same sets. Siddler's Fist. Yeah, I think Lobstrom might be the most elaborate special effect that we get in the sequel. <laughs> I love that even even Joe kind of starts getting protective of it to an extent, like when he's reading the script of the sequel and he's like, I don't know, this doesn't really have the spirit of the original. <laughs> which kind of leads me to the one of my also favorite jokes, which is all of the people being named after Roy's. So Roy Orbison, Roy Clark, and Roy a cup but that you know obviously Roy a cuff a cup is one of the best villains i love just what an asshole this guy is the whole thing with him farting into his hand and waving it under your nose i mean he's just the perfect bully i love it 
there's a deleted scene that didn't make it in where he, he he potters himself like maybe I should just be a good person and stop farting on people. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> I didn't watch all those outtakes. Did you get a chance to go through all that stuff? I, I did just because I, I had time this morning. But uh, I mean, you know, it's it, just like any outtakes is a lot of laughs, a lot of flood lines, you know, that kind of thing. But, you know, not not necessary viewing unless you just want to have a few extra laughs. Oh, yeah, I had the DVD for this, and I, as soon as I had gotten it, I watched through all the extras and listened to all the commentaries. I read the script, which oddly is credited to Randolph Severn Parker III. Uh, oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> and there were just a couple jokes that didn't make it that I, I kind of wish that they would have. There was one part where there was a guy who's masturbating and he's about to come on this woman and she's like don't come on me and so he like stands up and he just won't quit masturbating he just keeps jerking off and then he goes and uh he's gonna do it on the blanket they're like no no not on that bedspread that costs three hundred dollars so then he like gets up and runs over and it's like no no not in that plant and then he just <laughs> he eventually he runs out the door and you hear like traffic and all this stuff it's like don't come on my car and they actually did film that it that is in the deleted scenes and they they filmed a lot of it in fact the end result is uh he gets to come on the hollywood sign that was the only place he could get some relief like yeah, at one point he's gonna come into a jar of cookies like hey i just baked those cookies Hot damn. how far into pre-production was it where because i know originally they wanted to make this a musical how far into production was it before they kind of realized they couldn't do that or into pre-production, I guess. This shooting script was from 97 and there was no musical um, bits in there. And it does have the nice, uh, please be aware there will be no nudity contained in the final film, except for the occasional male butt. <laughs> there is a lot. It is still got an NC-17. What? <laughs> it, ha it has literally less than, I mean, because I was a teenage boy when this came out, but it has like literally less than one second of nipples from Julie Ashton in the beginning, right before, you know, ass covers. <laughs> and I do love the soundtrack when when he comes in and just that noise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of the soundtrack, I mean, this this that is something that really stood out to me this time. And I I didn't know I like I didn't know who Ween was when this first came out. And I'm like, now I'm going back. I'm like, oh, that was Ween. And, and that song's they did a song in there that's not available anywhere but this movie. So which is kind of a bummer. But um, I knew who Ween was from from the It's Pat movie. That's how I knew who Ween was. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. That movie's not as good as this one. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> It's an endurance test is what that is. Yeah, man. <laughs> There's a version of this where the pop songs aren't in it, right? That's technically the, the watching this for the show just gave me an excuse to go through the whole uh, Blu-ray again. But um, yeah, the, the unrated, the quote unquote unrated version, which was, I think, just an early preview screening where they didn't have the music uh, rights and there's like different dialogue takes. Um, it's it's not different story wise at all. There's no additional scenes. It's just pretty much different takes and different sound cues. Not worth your time, honestly. As long as it's still got his DVDA song at the beginning of it and the end. It does, yeah. It's them also doing that weird German song at the club, too, right? Oh, Twisted Steel Leather Donut. God, I love his songs, man. I love what Parker does with music and musicals. It's so good. Going back to uh, the idea of this being a musical again, uh, watching the extras on this, um, they said that's the reason why South Park became a musical was because they didn't do it for this. I think Matt pushed for it and Trey didn't want to on this one because they had just done it on Cannibal. 
But long story short, this not being a musical turned the South Park movie into one, which is kind of interesting. I guess I do like that it's I, I love his music and I love his musicals. But I but I do like that they're that that they do have one that's that that's not. It, it works without being one. And yeah, you do at least get that opening song and that really killer comic book art. I kind of wish that there was a comic book version of Orgasmo as well. I'm surprised there's not. For years, I never knew that Choda, like for Choda Boy, was, uh, what was that, like Hindi for fucker? I always thought they were calling him a chode. And I was like, why would they call him a chode? That doesn't really make sense. But I guess it makes as much sense as Choda Boy. I thought it was about Chode too. Okay. So did I. So did I. <laughs> okay. Shoot. Even when he's at home, he can't make any gadgets that aren't shaped like penises. <laughs> yeah. Even when there's no reason, like for his contraptions, like that boomerang or the the grappling hook and all this kind of stuff, uh, the the um, the one that shoots out the rope to take out the gangsters. And I love those gangsters, just that whole... Now I'm curious, David, was the scene of the notary where they have to get uh, G. Fresh's signature notarized, was that shot? It was, actually. Wow. And and I think the producer... Uh, actually, you know, fun fact, uh, the producer... It was the producer who also was the director of the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, so... I fucking love G. Fresh and his whole thing. And especially when those goons come and rough them up. <laughs> just the little, like, just the snapping of the toothpicks one by one. Like, it's... <laughs> and the dummy. The the dummy that they use for when they throw him into stuff and slam his face into the glass. And I love that it holds on those shots. Or it's clearly a dummy. <laughs> when they're beating him with a baseball bat and then he just reaches up, he's got that little cut on his face. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you get that cut? Yeah. Well, the, the other part of the, uh, in that scene, uh, the the karaoke guy, I don't know why that kills me every time. And puppies and kittens and Patrick Duffy. Yeah, that guy is into it, too. Like, he doesn't care what's going on around him. Not like all this violence and stuff going on. No, no. It's like he's he's had a few. It's He's off of work. He's like, no, I'm continuing this song. He gets knocked over and he sets it back up and just continues. <laughs> Also, just the G Fresh uh, restaurant in general. I I just love the idea. Like, I I want to I want to believe this is true. That just after a day of fucking on set, you're like, hey, want to go get some sushi? And just all goes friendly group. I would. I just want to imagine that camaraderie amongst porn stars. I like that too. Like, whenever I watch that, I'm like, that's kind of cool. That it that it isn't just Joe and Chota Boy sitting there. It's like also Julie Ashton there as well. <laughs> I always wondered if Joe actually got his money from Orbison because it feels like he wouldn't do the second one unless he had gotten the 20 grand. Didn't he when he went to the party? Well, yeah, he goes, here's the check for the rest of your money, but it's a personal check. Oh, I got you. Especially because the sequel doesn't have the spirit of the original. (laughs) You better pay me more money. $40,000 is nothing nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) It's almost enough to get married in the temple. Oh, yeah, that was one thing my wife goes. She goes, oh, yeah, I, I guess it probably costs a lot of money to get there, married there. That one she wasn't sure about. She goes, yeah, I guess it probably does. Otherwise, I assume more people would. The DVD and I assume that the Blu-ray are just stuffed to the gills with special features. You're talking about the all the extras and, and just the outtakes. There's like the Book of Orgasmo where you get to you know, go behind the scenes. There's the um, early 
trailer version of it where Ron Jeremy's actually playing the Max Orbison role. But the one thing I really liked was they've got three commentaries, but one of them is um, the drunken commentary with Parker and all of his buddies all getting drunk. Parker, even at that, he knows how to set up a joke and then just keeps delivering this whole thing where he's like, I really wanted to come up with a look that conveyed this and this and this. And he's like, and I practice it in front of the mirror and you can see it right here. And he just keeps doing that through the whole thing. (laughs) And then he stops for a while and then he brings it back for one final one and it just kills. I don't know what it is, but he's got that great timing even on the stupid commentary track. Same with the Cannibal the Musical one. Their drunken commentaries are great. Just the stories he tells and like just pointing out these funny bits, like you little things like you being able to tell that he says when he says cut in one scene and in Cannibal the Musical. And they are re-listenable like hell. And even ones that I haven't heard in a lot of years, I still remember bits from them. Yeah, that's one I've been meaning to get to. I have not. I've heard that commentary is legendary, so to say. The Cannibal, the musical. Yeah, yeah, for Cannibal, the musical. I want to say I heard that they trash on one of their ex girlfriends throughout the whole thing, or something like that. He does because the whole, Leanne, the horse in the movie, is like named after his ex fiance. <laughs> in Orgasmo, he's talking about because he and Toddy Walters, uh, who played the Georgia Georgia character, the one with the enormous breasts and the white wig type of thing he's like oh yeah we were going out at the time and look at how i'm french kissing uh you know robin lynn rab the who plays lisa and i'm like well you're not really french kissing her you're kind of like sloppy licking each other's faces (laughs) he's just genuinely funny he's great at having chemistry with anyone he's opposite of in his movies I've, i've always thought he was a wildly underrated leading man I, I still like I know they hate it and critics certainly do, but I still really like basketball. He cracks me up in that. He and Matt Stone, I think they have great I think they have great chemistry together in it. Same with him and Dean Bacar in this and with the cast, it with the whole cast in, in Cannibal the Musical. He he's just a really, really, really likable actor and just genuinely funny and his timing just even when he's himself, whether it's commentaries or when he's in movies. He gets a hard laugh, even if you've heard it a bunch of times. And his sincerity and likability in this, especially playing this, you know, but Mormon kind of cartoonishly likable character, it's it's perfect him playing this part and and being the star of this. I an unapologetic lover of uh, basketball. I mean, it's stupid, but it's supposed to be. <laughs> I mean, what you know, it's it's a Z or now what is Zaz, but it's you know one of those Z's. But uh, yeah, no, they uh, another. One that hasn't got much mentioned yet on here is um, the guy playing uh, Max Orbison. Um, the whole time I watched it this time, I don't know uh, if they worked in those or ran in those circles at the time, but like I got a very Harvey Weinstein uh, feeling this time watching it. Uh, maybe it's just because what we know, what we know now, I don't know. Um, but I just kept thinking like, you know, he might be age appropriate if they were going to do like a prestige, you know, biography or whatever on uh, Harvey Weinstein. He could be in the running if he still wants to act. I don't know. Kind of just had that feeling. I was thinking the same thing, too. I was like, he is like an over the top villain, but there is genuine menace there. Like there is a threat. Like he he's kidnapped Joe's fiance and he's going to force her to be in this movie. Like that is a genuine Weinstein-esque threat. (laughs) 
yeah, it gets real dark around that time. <laughs> yeah. Real dark. And it's like, my goodness, where have we gone, Orgasmo? <laughs> <laughs> like, it makes it like, for A Cup lightening it up a bit. Like, <laughs> you're rooting for this guy, man. You're like, oh my God, please get in there and save her from that. And it's still funny, too. Like, it is genuine menace. But it is funny, like when he kicks Ron Jeremy's face in and it's glass. Oh my God. <laughs> so apparently Ron Jeremy didn't understand the humor of this movie. I can't remember if it was on the commentaries or one of the behind the scenes, but um, I think it was uh, Trey saying that Ron Jeremy would say like, well, why why are you doing that? Like the clay pot face looks stupid or why are you burning a, a fake model? Like he's like, no, you, you don't get it. You'll get it when you see it. And he just kept questioning every at every turn. Trey Parker's, uh, you know, decisions on the movie. Like, why are you doing that? He's like, just, you'll, you'll get it when you see it. I'm surprised considering how many, like, goofy comedies he's in. Like, and he's in a lot of trauma movies. And I'm just so glad to see him doing Kung Fu again, because one of my favorite adult films is Raw Talent, where he and Jerry Butler go at it toe-to-toe, uh, doing a karate fight. So good. And then when he gets to do karate again in this, and then we get to see, uh, you know, you got to use your hamster style, Ben. Ben! Use your hamster style! No, I can't! Hamster style, Ben! Do it! No! The end is fantastic, but even to play upon the height difference between orgasmo and Chota boy and just you know really playing up the whole sidekick thing and then it's nice too that at the end you kind of have the mini boss and the boss between a cup and and orbison you know he's parroting a whole bunch of things he knows what the original intention is of all this stuff so he knows how to break all those rules which is really smart and this is what his second feature that he made you know in the first one cannibal was almost a school project but not quite he hit that that sweet spot. I mean, I'd say for a 10-year run, I'll, I'll go as far as to um, Team American World Police. I mean, he he was just on fire. I mean, of course, you know, Book of Mormon, but I mean, he seems to, they just seem to be focused on South Park these days. Kind of wish, I kind of wish he'd get back out and make another little movie like this. You know, especially right now with the MCU and the, you know, Batman. I mean, like this feels like ripe for a, like dust that off, you know. I do too. I, I, I always wish he got back out and did an, another live action movie especially one that he would that he would star in uh, but but I, I mean i still love his stuff i, I still watch south park uh, my wife and i are big fans of it like so i i still watch all the new episodes of this day and i'll still get a laugh out of it same with his it's still it, some of the best satire oh totally like hands down so at least it's not like yeah they mostly just kind of do south park now and and yeah there was book of mormon as well but it's not like it's one of those shows that's gone on for a couple decades and has been bad for 10 years it it's not it's still really clever they still do things to rein to reinvent themselves and do inject new things and new ideas into it so it's still a a very high quality product that he's putting out there and man he's still funny like when i whenever there's like a new interview with him like whether he's he's at a con or doing some q a or something like that i'll stop what i'm doing and watch it because because man he and matt stone are funny together it's probably been maybe in the rumor mill for a long time so i don't know if it's still true or not but there might be a Book of Mormon movie eventually. It seems like that would be the next logical thing to do, but I don't know if that's ever going to 
come off the ground or not. And he was listed as the co-director of that, but who knows? Maybe. Yeah, that's been rumored for some time. I, I haven't heard anything new on that in a while. The newest thing on that that I heard, I think they were, or at least Josh Josh Gad was putting the idea out there of doing something kind of like what they did with Hannibal, not Hannibal, uh, Hamilton, <laughs> um, Hamilton on uh, when it was on Disney Plus, doing something like that where they'd get the original cast together and basically film a production of it. I could be totally down with something like that. That sounds great. Has anybody else had the chance to to see that show? I have, yeah. Yeah, I saw it on Broadway and once in San Francisco, and it, it kills each time. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see. Uh, loved, I wish they would have captured that on film. Hopefully it's not too late. <laughs> I saw a bootleg of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, guy, the, the guy's head in front of the camera was great. What, one of the best things is we went and saw it in uh, on Broadway, and... Um, there's this lady in front of us that was bitching at intermission, just like, oh my God, this is the most disgusting thing ever. Like, I go see all the Broadway shows and I've never seen something so vile. I'm just like, did you not know what you bought a ticket to? <laughs> like, Thought this was going to be like Jesus of Nazareth, damn it. So let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Georgie herself, Toddy Walters. And after that, we'll hear from producer Jason McHugh. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash projection booth that's pretty simple i think you can do that it's a great show and mike he provides hours of great entertainment so now it's time to give back my little droogies settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old malocco and then you'll be ready for a little of the old in out in out real horror show bye-bye I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. These days, you're making your life doing what? Songwriting, singing, all the musical kind of stuff. So you've been into music forever, correct? Yeah, I've been writing music since the early 90s, you know, but I've been singing since I was a kid, and I've been involved in a bunch of different projects over the years. Some are just recording of my own, my own original music, and some are collaborations with other people and some producers. And yeah, a while back, I used to do some more voiceovers on commercials and things like that. That's kind of something that I don't do much of nowadays. Nowadays, I like to collaborate with with people that I like my peers and co-write and just, yeah, just record my own stuff. Sometimes someone will ask me to, some like random South Park fan will ask me to do a little voiceover on something that they're working on because they were so inspired by South Park that I like doing that kind of thing because I like to encourage people to be creative, you know? When did you find that you had had a passion for music? I think always felt like I could sing. And I remember being a kid and just like, and this was in the 
like late 70s, early 80s, when I listened to a lot of like modern pop rock <laughs> on the radio. And and I always thought I sounded just, I could sound just like Anne Murray or I could sound just like Linda Ronstadt or, you know, I probably didn't sound exactly like them, but I had a good ear for music. I had a good pitch. I loved singing. I just, I mean, it's never, never left me. I've always dreamed of singing, you know. Did you grow up in Denver? I did. I grew up in Denver. Uh, moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico for one year of college and then dropped out after the first year and then um, moved to LA shortly afterwards for about a year and a half in the late 80s. And then I moved back to Colorado for a few years. And that's when I went to see Boulder for a year and met the South Park guys. And and then I moved back to LA in 1998 for 13 years. And then I moved back to Colorado 10 years ago. Yeah, you say South Park guys, and it feels like a very much a boys club, but how were you as part of that club? I just remember really wanting to be a part of whatever it was they were doing because I uh, I was going to see you Boulder and I did a few student films and every semester they would show all the films at the end of the semester. And I had a couple in one of these and I went and watching all of them and they showed the Trey Parker. It was it was called Cannibal the Musical, but it was made as as if it were a trailer for a movie, and that was super original, you know. And and everyone that was watching it, you could feel this buzz in the room that people were like, "What is this? Is this a real movie that's happening?" You know, because it was it was a trailer, but it, it was so funny. And I, you know, being a really an aspiring actor, I was like, I want to be a part of that. I don't, I want to be part of that. So I just met who, whoever was involved and asked around and I got an audition and I got it. And I don't know, it was just really cool. And really, I was only on the set for maybe like three days total. It really wasn't a, a lot of effort on the movie Cannibal the Musical that used to be called Alfred Packard the Musical. I was the female lead in that movie and the only woman who had, you know, a character, there was a couple like saloon wenches in that interview, but they're like the hair and makeup girls. What were your films like? One was by Jason McHugh, who is one of the South Park, you know, one of the tertiary characters of that group. And he did crap TV back in the day. And he's great. And he had a movie, I'm trying to remember what it's called. I recently had all these uh, videotapes and I recently got them all digitized. So so I hadn't seen those because I haven't had a VHS tape player in forever. And I was just surprised. It was funny because, you know, interspersed throughout that program were so many of the people that ended up working with Trey and Matt over time. And so it was just interesting to look back. So that film... I just played like a spurned girlfriend. And then another one was another young director, this female. It was called um, Talk to Me. And I had a lesbian kiss. And I was like, (laughs) it was very, I did a lot of experimenting back then. But yeah, so definitely when you say boys club, that's for sure what it was. But there was a lot of badass women that were in that program that were became producers and cinematographers and things like that over the years. What came first? Because I know that you worked on 
obviously Cannibal the Musical, which I imagine was kind of the one of the first things. But then you also worked on Time Warped as well as the original pilot for South Park. What was that timeline like? So Cannibal the Musical was done in, I don't know, 95. I mean, it was finished by 95 at the very latest. So it it was kind of around and they were, I think, you know, trying to, they were going to slam dance at Sundance and, and that was around 95 and just trying to find distribution for it. And that was around the time that um, I think South Park was already brewing 95, 94, 95. And then in 96 is when I think it got, Fox kids interested in Time Warped. And so there were two episodes made in Colorado, which was awesome because it employed a bunch of people and who were professionals in the scene at that time. And it was a great idea. And I really look for, I look at that time as really fun and creative and kind of guerrilla. But then they were also working on the original episode, the pilot episode of South Park, which they produced here at Celluloid Studios, which was a really awesome studio that no longer opened. But so that was like 96. And then they started going to LA to sleep on people's couches for a number of months, I think. And I remember I went with them to slam dance and then I drove back to Colorado and they went to, um, to LA because I was dating Trey by that point. And so it was kind of long distance for a little while while he was doing his thing. But I would come come to LA and kind of see the squalor with which they lived in Playa del Rey. (laughs) There's always like a trail of ants coming through their apartment from the beach. (laughs) So that was a crazy time, I think. And they were meeting all sorts of people and they used Cannibal as a calling card but they were also, I think, devising the South Park at the time and devising how to actually create it. And so that's when they made The Spirit of Christmas, which, as you know, is in that same animation vein that became like a phenomenon in Hollywood because they sent it out as a, they send it out to people with no credits or anything and VHS style. And it started, you know, making headway and people started talking about it. And then they're, lawyer sent it out as a Christmas card, like high-powered LA lawyer that they somehow got. I don't even know how, but he sent it out to, I don't know how many people in his circle, and it just created a buzz. And that was the genius marketing scheme to do that because it was just, just the whole thing about it was totally original. You know, nowadays, it's like anyone can create anything right in front of them on their computer. But back then, it took a little bit of ingenuity I seem to remember George Clooney somehow plays a role in this. How does he enter into the picture? Maybe George Clooney was his lawyer was the guy that was becoming their lawyer. I think all I know is that for a while there, and this is kind of when I didn't live in LA yet, because I moved back in 1998. George Clooney, I guess, was kind of well known for having parties, and and he somehow got a hold of one of these. And he just loved Christ- Spirit of Christmas. He thought the guys were just so cool. He, you know, invited them to come to his parties and stuff. And so I don't know exactly what, I don't know how else if they worked together. I don't even know if he was on an episode of South Park. He probably was. I'm not sure. 
But that's that's all I remember. I never got to go to those parties, but you know, probably better that way. <laughs> so when do you first start to hear about Orgasmo? During the same time that South Park was being picked up and made into a show, I think I'm trying to think of the timeline, but it was 97. So he started talking because he has been, Trey's been obsessed with Mormonism his entire life, <laughs> obviously. So I heard about this idea and it's just really cool. But, and I don't know exactly how this happened, but they conceived of the idea for the Mormon moving to Los Angeles to do his mission and becoming involved in the porn industry, and which is hilarious just in and of itself. And then they were meeting people who had connections to the porn industry, ostensibly, I guess, to do research on the industry. You know, I mean, I don't, I can think of it as like a marketing thing to do because eventually they got Run Jeremy on board. But so they were starting to attend porn shoots here and there. I think, in fact, like Carrie Fisher was at one of them. Uh, like it was kind of a popular thing to do for the glitter- glitterati or whatever. So I go, yeah, it's a popular thing to do. Of course, I was asking, you know, Trey, like, what? I want to be in it, you know? And um, so he was talking about this one character who's actually based on a real character and her, her name, I mean, a real porn actress person. And she, her name was Daria or something like that. But Apparently, she was kind of clumsy and had really large breasts. And so <laughs> I was like, I want to play her, you know. I didn't really get to be super funny and kind of, well, I like to do comedy. And so I may have pressured him to give me the role. <laughs> but he gave it to me, so that's good. And I mean, I still kind of auditioned for it a little, but I got it, nailed it. And I was one of two non-adult actors in the film which is hilarious and but I thought I thought some of the actresses the porn but the porn actresses did a really good job in it you know <laughs> you know for for what it was I, I thought it was ballsy and um brave you are almost unrecognizable in that role i had to keep checking cuz i'm just like you looked so different in all of those roles but once you get to that one I mean, just the wig and the boobs and everything. I mean, how did that outfit come together for you? Oh my God, that was that was kind of a, a feat. Because the idea was, and I don't know if it actually translates in the movie, but the idea was that in every scene that you saw Georgie in, her boobs would be a little bit bigger every time, like as if she's going to get argumented on a regular basis, but... I don't know if it ever came across that way, but we tried a few ways to give the illusion of having really large breasts, which one way was to, like we tried when one scene in a pool scene, there was an outfit where they had these fake, like what, what drag performers would wear, which is like a prosthetic and then a top over it. But the prosthetic they had was really terrible. So I had this really low cut shirt on or a dress and I had these big plastic things coming out and so I came out in this outfit just so that so that the director you know could see it and I remember walking through this hair these boobs that just looked really odd people were like there's one girl she's like is that a, is that a 
tranny or, you know, I don't know what it was, but she was like, oh. <laughs> I know that's not an appropriate word to use, but in 1996, apparently it was okay. <laughs> but anyway, so we came up with the idea of like pretty much the shirts I wear, are like collared, higher collar shirts with just like balloons or whatever was underneath to to give it like heft because you couldn't really do it the other way so if you notice i'm pretty much covered the entire time (laughs) you are not performing all those stunts all the time are you no but kind of i kind of was performing them like i did a number of takes where i hit the wall because i would run up to it and like you know you put your arm down at the bottom of the door frame and you hit you go back there was a woman who was on it who was my uh, stunt double, and she was actually really good at my job. <laughs> she was an actress, too. She was, she was super funny, and she put on all the padding, and you couldn't even tell she had padding on, but she did the stunts. She did the ones that looked like the real deal. Yeah, when you fall off the bed or your stunt person falls off the bed, that looks like it really hurts. Oh my god! I can't believe she did that. She was she was like a pretzel. She was just <laughs> very talented. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't end up like in the closet, all tied up like in that one I Love Lucy episode where the where I Lucy puts like the other actress who's supposed to go on stage that night. She like ties her up and throws her in a appliance closet or something. So, what do you remember about the shoot? What was it like for you? It was fun you know it was like the real the first real professional movie that i had been on in that you know most of the crew i didn't know and many were seasoned older than we were and it it was just i don't know it was fun there was all these different you know locations and uh, there was one um big huge gross monstrosity of a mansion and on Sunset, off of Sunset Boulevard, that was um, where a lot of it took place. And it was really interesting to meet the different actors that were hired. And I saw some of their tapes, their audition tapes, and they're all hilarious because, man, you go to L.A. and, like, there's this where the professionals go, and there's a lot of really talented people. So I was really impressed with the cast that I didn't know, and I was equally as impressed with the cast that I did know. So I don't know. I just love, I love doing, I love that whole thing. It it was just really fun to, to play. First of all, it kind of decided on certain affectations that she would have, that like, like being a little cross-eyed, you know, and which I don't even know if it comes through, but it does. Okay, good. <laughs> and um, working with Dean was really fun. And Trey was really takes all of this so seriously and it was very stressful for him because he was also kind of handling South Park at the time. I don't know. It was just really a good introduction to the industry and meeting all the various characters involved. It was fun. Good times. Did the quote unquote regular actors hang out with the porn actors or did they kind of segregate themselves? Chasey Lane was a super, I think that's her name, super well-known adult actress at the time and i don't remember really like i'm probably more bold today i would have wanted to meet everyone but i didn't ever really meet her so she was she was probably a little isolated just by 
proxy of just by being who she was. But I remember talking, there was another actress on it and she was from Colorado Springs. Is that Julie Ashton? Yes. Yes, exactly. Julie. She was super cool. I really liked her. She's very down to earth and um, I appreciated chatting with her. But otherwise, like the like the ass fuck twins. <laughs> I didn't meet them. I was able to be on set uh, on some days that I wasn't actually needing to be there. And that was really fun. But it feels like everyone was pretty open to having a good time. And, you know, it had a light kind of energy to it. There's a real theme of Japan that runs through so much of Trey's early work. Where did that come from? I imagine it's probably from the same type of television options that I had as a kid where you saw Godzilla movies straight from Japan, you know, they were on television on a pretty regular basis, Bruce Lee movies, and it's just that whole Japanese cinema. I remember seeing a lot of movies just on a regular TV, like, especially on like Saturdays that were from Japan. But he also had a exchange student stay with him that he met in college who influenced him, I think, a little bit just by nature of being Japanese and being there. But probably just a fixation with the culture just from the cinema that he was watching, I imagine. I loved the man that plays G Fresh, who is also the Native American chief in Cannibal the Musical. He is so good. He's hilarious. Yeah, I remember yeah, he um at his sushi restaurant in Boulder. He had a really high-end, successful sushi place in Boulder at the time. And um, I think he played the saxophone or something. What a character. Yeah. So memory serves, there wasn't a lot of support for the movie and it just kind of tanked. It felt like the studio had no wanting to get behind it at all. I don't even remember who released it. I know that... I think it was October Films? I yeah, they had, I remember the VHS tape having the preview of the movie Elizabeth on it. That's appropriate. I know. This is an odd little preview for this movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I mean, it was just a very, very low budget movie. And I think there's a lot of good things about it. But I also think that Cannibal's a better movie on just different levels, I think, for different reasons. And it's definitely definitely not everyone's cup of tea, but any of the live action things that they've ever done are a lot of people's cup of teas, you know, like a you know, more of a cult kind of thing. I think is pretty cool. So did you immediately kind of shift gears and go right into South Park mode after Orgasmo, or were you actually working on South Park at the same time? Because I know you did a lot of voices on there. More than actually was employed on the South Park bigger, longer, and uncut movie as the production office coordinator because I had moved to LA by then. And Trey was kind enough to help me get a job on that movie. I had al- already had production experience, so it wasn't like total newbie, but it was definitely a step up from what I was doing. And so that was great. And, and that was a year and a half. Uh, that I was on that movie. And during that time is when I was doing the voices on the show because they were in tandem doing the show and the movie at the same time. Crazy. 
I remember that documentary about the making of one episode of South Park and just that it gets turned around so quickly and or things like we don't know who's going to win the election so we'll have two versions of the same show or at least a, they probably swap some things out but it was just like this is amazing that they can do this and put it out so quickly after an event happens. That's fantastic and it's a testament to I think uh, some of the key members of the crew that they've worked with, you know, forever. And because to work under someone who's like very got to keep up on it and they expect a lot, it's you have to hire the right people and it's hard to do. So, but they, I think they've really done well with who they've surrounded themselves with in production. You mentioned your production experience. Do I remember right that you worked on the Thin Red Line? I worked on the Thin Red Line and um, as a wardrobe person, like a wardrobe assistant for a little while. And then I got hired to do be a featured extra on this film. And so one day I got to be in front of the camera for the cinematographer, John Toll, who has done incredible things. I just had this one scene, didn't have any lines. It was just a close-up of me witnessing the man I love, witnessing the woman he loves. And and so I just remember like um trying to like he's like, just okay, now pretend like, you know, you're seeing her and you see him and 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 I'm like he's like, Don't chicken neck. Don't chicken neck. I was like, Okay, you know, it was so awkward, but that day or later on, or maybe it was the next day, Grant Hill, he's one of the producers. He was kind of a buddy of mine, really cool dude. He's produced a lot of Terrence Malick stuff. And he um, he was like, I just spent all day looking at your face and I think you're going to make it into the movie. And I was like, what? Okay. But sadly, I didn't. I was like, out of a three-hour movie and 800 famous actors, you can't just give me my 10-second close up <laughs> what the hell <laughs> don't feel so bad wasn't it ben affleck what wound up on the cutting room floor of a malik film um i don't know that but i didn't believe it i i heard that there might be a director's cut if you can believe it of that film that's probably five hours long i do believe it with malik i believe it right seriously yeah that was so interesting that was when i was the actress's not stunt double, double. What do you call those people that stand in there? A stand-in. I was her stand-in on the second unit. That was fun. So while you're in LA and you're working on all this stuff, including South Park and South Park the movie, are you still singing or how are you supporting yourself during this whole time? After the movie, I was hired on to another animated feature called Lil Pimp, L-I-L apostrophe pimp that barely saw the light of day, but that allowed me to have a, a living <laughs> for the next couple of years. And then I took some time off to do a record. I got married and and then I and then I just started working in a regular job in human resources while I was pursuing music outside of it and doing work with producers and uh, doing some voiceovers, but I just ended up like having a regular job for for all those years and just doing my creative stuff outside of that. And 
it was great. I, I had some really friends there and I had a good, I played a lot of shows and it was, it was a really great time. And then after 2011, well, I had gotten um, out of my marriage. And then in 2011, I was just like, you know what? I want to go home. I want to be with my family and start appreciating music for music again. And that was 10 years ago. And I've done some stuff since and continue to do creative endeavors. Tell me about your Amy Winehouse band. In 2014, I conceived of this idea. Actually, someone I, I know, a musician friend of mine, Byron Shaw, he he was like, you know, it'd be really cool as if because she had passed away in 2011. He was like, oh, we should do it, an Amy Winehouse tribute band. And I would never have considered it anything like that had it not been for her. And the fact that she was no longer around and, and her music was so incredible. So I put together a 10-person a band. It took me a while to find members, but I scooped up some some graduates from the Lamont School of Music at University of Denver. Really talented young people. And we started just by playing her, her live sets as they were done like performed as her. I recited what dialogue she had in between songs. So we would do these shows like Glastonbury 2007. And and then then we just started playing all of her songs at shows. And then I wanted to make it a little bit different. I wanted to, to deepen it by taking it into a more theatrical direction. It's like So I started with the concept that Amy Winehouse now lives in heaven. Because she does. And and so there's a lot of, of fodder for content there because, you know, she can meet with the other members of the 27 Club and all the different experiences she has now that and so I don't so I scripted it between songs as if, you know, she were there and so I could so I'd concentrate on who she was in heaven and not who she was down here necessarily because I didn't wanna drag her through any kind of mud or anything because she was too special for that you know and so that was really successful and I played that theme for a while and I thought about maybe turning it into some kind of a production like like a one-woman show or or something that could be take taken to Broadway you know that's like not with me necessarily but creating a show that was about her that would be really cool and since then there there are other amy winehouse tribute bands too but i feel like we did it in a really unique way and but i eventually just got it was really hard to shepherd 11 10 11 people it was tiring (laughs) but it was fun can you tell me about stadium anthems and how that came about for you in 2016 i wasn't doing any kind of acting here or in denver at that time at all. And I was just doing music and hanging out. But an old friend was like, hey, you should come and audition for this thing. It's this guy and he has this fun and he's going to do a movie. And I was like, okay, whatever. That sounds fun. And then so I, I auditioned for two other characters before I finally got a lead in this film. And, and I was really impressed with Scott Douglas Brown. That's the director. And um his painstaking way that he went about writing this crazy script, super convoluted, crazy script that he had to really pare down quite a bit. And he had edit way down from what it, from everything that he shot down to what it is now. And, um, and 
was wonderful because like the character that I got, she was originally supposed to be like in her early twenties. We so we devised kind of a little bit of a convention change and presented her as being a little bit older, who's, you know, wanting to just do art for art's sake, really, and um dealing with sexism and ageism in the industry. And so that was really fun because I do what I love is just to sing and provide music for the production as well as like the music supervisor. I wasn't I wasn't licensing mu- music. That wasn't like it's not a traditional music supervisor, but I was coordinating all the musicians because it was all original music in that film, like 30 pieces of music. Some were Scott's and some were mine and some were a couple other cast members as well. It was fun. And what have we been up to lately? My partner and I moved to Basalt, Colorado, which is kind of down valley from Aspen. And it's beautiful, as you can see probably. (laughs) But we've lived here for a year, and he's the director of programming for an arts and venue, an arts and culture venue that opened up here in September called Taka, which stands for the Arts Campus at Willits. And it's a beautiful theater. And so we moved to this little town and I've been doing a bunch of things, but I've been concentrating on the nonprofit sector and working in grant grant writing. And that's been awesome. And I've also been about to do a show, like a, an all-female um, original theater production that is being uh, the, each woman in the show, each of the 10 have like 10 minutes to do a piece all on that she wrote, that she writes, and utilizing the talents of the other cast members to support the piece if they want. And, and then just basically collaborate with all the women to create this, this thematic piece. And so that's going to be in April. So it's really just taking it way down, like to a local level, which is awesome. And I, I did a record to a couple of years ago called Revelator. The collaboration is called Revelator, and I'm really proud of these songs. I can send you the link to the Spotify if you want. I'm really proud of those songs. That was a collaboration between me and a longtime friend and incredible drummer, Jeff Mintz, and Mike Johnson is another local artist. Um, he's a he's a really well-known in the sort of prog rock arena for Thinking Plague, which is one of his bands. So that was really fun. And so I try to keep being productive creatively. And I do get asked on a pretty regular basis if I want to sing on something or collaborate. And so I have that at my disposal when I want. And I would like to do a record in the future, but don't have any plans to do that. I definitely want to. And I think it'll happen in the next year. Toddy, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Well, thank you, Mike. I appreciate you inviting me, and I had a really good time chatting with you. There's a lark in the meadow perched upon a willow tree, and the song that he's a singing sounds like a good idea to me. I don't know where I'm going, and I don't know where I've been. The only thing I'm sure of is that I'm happy as sin. Yipper, yipper, through the desert land I roam, looking for salvation, trying to get me some. Yipper, yipper, and I don't know where I'm 
going I'm just a lonesome Hebrew Miles away from home Come on, Sheba, the Lord's awaiting I got my trusty camel And my trusty Abram pride And what I've got is a grand old feeling That's only mine to keep Yeah, I'm so gosh darn happy I could almost kill a sheep Yippee, yippee Through the desert land I roam Looking for salvation, trying to get me some. Yippee, yippee, and I don't know where I'm going. I'm just a lonesome Hebrew, miles away from home. Yippee. And I'm just a lonesome Hebrew, miles away from home. Yippee. So obviously I want to ask you about Orgasmo, but I really want to hear a little bit more as far as like your early career and kind of how you got into film and filmmaking itself, if that's all right. Both my parents uh, were artists or are artists. They're still living um, and they had this psychedelic poster company called East Totem West um, that sort of painted the backdrop to my childhood and very creative artist collective. And so, you know, I had that big artistic influence growing up and I got to college and I was trying to figure out what would be a good major and i took this super eight film class and just really kind of loved it and really loved the creativity of different path than my parents but it was still um just still still doing something creative and it was sort of one of those things where the more classes i took the more i enjoyed it and the people that i was meeting and um made it my film major and you know and that really just kind of led directly into everything because in film schools where I, I hooked up with Matt Stone and Trey Parker. So just kind of all happened from a bunch of film geeks at the CU Boulder film department back in the 90s, you know. From what I understand, Cannibal the Musical is actually a student film. Is that correct? Well, you know, it, it depends who you ask. You know, if you ask me, it's um, my first professional production, you know, and uh, I graduated just before Trey and Matt. Well, Matt, Trey never graduated because he got kicked out of school during the production of Cannibal the Musical. So it wasn't really a student production for him. At the end, uh, a lot of, you know, we used um, the CU film department talent, you know, completely and cast out of school. So a lot of people did get, you know, student credit for it. So, you know, it was just, you know, it was like if you were a student, you could get better deals on film and processing and all those kind of things. So we'd put our student filmmaking hat on all the time um, up until, you know, when it was time to then sell the movie. And then, you know, we were just competing, you know, in the sort of independent film festival arena from there on out. So partially student film, but uh, partially not. Because, you know, we also, you know, we had an actual LLC with some lawyers and we took actual investment and, you know, it was a real company and um and so you know again it was partially student partially professional i mean it's one thing to make a movie about the alfred packard story it's another thing to make it a musical i mean it seems like making it a musical would just make it so much tougher to do well yeah of course and not unless unless you've got a musical genius that happens to be in your film class well then it gets a lot easier all of a sudden you know because i mean trey wrote all the songs you know, and, uh, and, you know, that's not, that, you know, I, I, of course, I, of course, cast as the guy who doesn't sing, um, but that's based on, you know, reality. You know, I really not a singer. And so, so we kind of used my talent as a non singer to be a guy who doesn't sing in the movie, but, um, making it a musical just made it all the more insane, you know, and, um, 
you know, later in life, I would discover that there is really a musical for every insane topic under the sun. But at the time, you know, uh, cannibal is the, the craziest thing out there for sure. There's cannibal, there's time warped, there's spirit of Christmas. All this stuff seems to be happening around the same time. How does it actually play out? Way back when Trey was still in school, um, he and I shared an animation class together. And, um, you know, that's where Trey did this thing called, um, American history. Do you know about that one? But that's where he won a student Academy award. So that was like the first crude animation, right. With, with, you know, construction paper cutouts. But then very soon after he did a frosty and snowman, which was the sort of like the really, really crappy precursor to Don Jesus and frosty spirit of Christmas. Right. Um, so the American history and the the first spirit of Christmas, right? Um, that that's not the viral one, right? And then Cannibal Musical, or maybe maybe he did maybe he did the the one Frosty during Cannibal. I'm not exactly sure, but that that one didn't really get out till later. It never really kind of got finished till later. Um, but then Cannibal, of course, and then we brought Cannibal the musical. We took you know we crashed the the film the film indie film circuit right where we crashed Sundance film festival um the fourth land dance you know we we got we, we we decided that we didn't get a rejection letter for Sundance and so which because we applied and they never even sent us a rejection letter you know that's how low on the totem pole we were with we didn't even we paid 50 bucks and we didn't even get that that rejection letter and we had a an incredible collection of rejection letters in our extremely small and crappy office like we kind of wore those as a badge of honor we had like about two dozen film festival rejection letters just like out of our wallpaper but so then after we didn't get the rejection from sundance trey called me and just said i had this vision that we would be at sundance and you know i'm pacing around my my room at my parents house in mill valley california and he'd be colorado like over christmas break and uh and I was just like, fuck it. Yeah, they didn't they didn't reject us, so let's just see if we can show up. And then a single phone call is able to book a, a screening room, like a conference room at a, at a hotel in Park City that had, you know, A V projection equipment and we rented it for, you know, for five afternoons and had five screenings and, you know, the producers and some of the core team showed up and painted the town with all these kind of crazy flyers um with, with you know like reviews re- like reviews from other movies sort of like crappily cut out and pasted on like our movie you know like things like daniel day lewis was terrific you know and just like the kind of taking the piss out of the whole scene um and when we done the production we had this incredible luck of convincing mtv the big picture show to do a little special about us um which was kind of just this incredible coup during the end of production and uh, we became friends with MTV producers, so when we did come to Crash Sundance, we called them up and had floors to sleep on. We rented their floors, and um, and that was the great kind of break into Hollywood um, to get that MTV story and other press was sort of like we got more attention than even being in the festival. And then, then we then the next stop was couch surfing in L- in LA for the next six months or so um from basically we met all these friends in park city and then there's like three dudes showing up at your doorstep in la saying hey can we crash here for a few days you know 
and we would literally be like just trying to keep a a small footprint as three dudes can at staying at somebody's house or while they're waiting for like the phone to ring you know with potential deals or you know meetings or whatnot you know to try to get distribution and then get future projects off the ground and after we went through all kinds of crazy battles this woman pam brady who had seen our original mtv story reached out to us she maybe reached out to us during the production of Cannibal. So when we finally got to LA, she was one of the first people we met with. You know, while some executives would we'd meet with them and they'd say, you know what you should do? You should make the next like Lethal Weapon 3. And we'd be like, what? You know, and then or the next, they just basically say, whatever the top box office thing is, that's what you guys should do. You should go and make a picture like that. And we're just like, did you just see what we just delivered you? You know, and um, but Pam was like, was the one person who was like, you guys should do Cannibal the Musical of the Week. It should be like Gilligan's Island, but it's Cannibal the Musical. And we're like, what? Are you crazy? We love that, but we don't want, we're tired of being cold in the mountains. So that's where Time Work came to be, where we could use the musical structure that, you know, um, basically, you know, the Alfred Packer, where it's this like unsung hero um, throughout history is focused on, and um, in a musical, of course. Um, we did that, uh, that time worked right. There's Aaron and Aaron and Moses story, which we did that and we did it for next to nothing. Uh, we got our whole sort of casting crew back on board. They all just pitched in. It was, it was a really fun production. Um, and then, uh, we took it back and they were like, it's getting picked up. You're going to get a six shows of time work. We're like, fantastic. And then two months would go by that, you know, we're going to do we're going to do four shows you know and then it'll be like okay and then and, and this is all why we're couch surfing so like when you're couch surfing it's like it's like dog years you know because it's like a, a one day equals like three weeks you know and we're like our day is like watching montel williams jenny jones like um all his daytime talk shows you know and those can help yourself the theme when you're just feeling like a loser waiting for the phone to ring of you know, and then we'd get our, our, our burrito for the day. Um, and then hopefully, you know, William Morris would call it like, you know, they'd always call like, at like five 30, it would be like the end of the day. You'd wait for their call to come in. Um, anyway, so over the course of six months, we went from a show pickup of six episodes to, we're just going to do another pilot. Um, and this time it's going to be for Fox kids. So you have to kind of change the humor up and kind of gear it towards kids. And, you know, we we're like, all right, well, fuck it. <laughs> Let's do a kid show. Uh, and, and it turned out that actually it was, it was a lot harder than we thought because there's so many restrictions on what you can do with something for kids. Um, where it was great was like we were, you know, we were kind of hitting like the educational note for, you know, being able to teach kids about history in a, in a comedic way. Um, but there are tons of things you couldn't do. And anyway, then we, the, the, the second pilot was Rome, Rome and Jewel which was Romeo and Juliet set in 1 million BC Africa. And uh, that production was a nightmare. Uh, we were, went way over our head. We thought it would be easier to do than shooting on a river. We had tigers and elephants, and Trey and Matt were in full-body makeup, and Matt was like the star, wrong. And by the end of the week, his face was peeling off from like the makeup going wrong, and it was like 90 degrees. But, you know, it was just like, it was just one of, it was a really hard shoot. It, it just kind of crushed everybody uh, and, and but then you know the piece of course turned out pretty good 
ultimately didn't get picked up because um, Fox Kids was like the number one network that year. You know, it tested actually decently. We did the whole thing where you watch kids, you watch through the glass window of kids judging your show, which is a hilarious and gut-wrenching exercise. You know, it turns out girls control the, the room and the playground. I'll tell you that much stuff that we learned on that. Um, they, they, and they also like shows like Melrose Place and ours was like this kind of educational folky musical, you know, so we didn't get picked up. Um, and at that point, Trey is like, I'm broke and I've got no money for Christmas presents for my family. And then Brian Graydon, who's sort of the head of that Fox division at the time, um, said, Hey, you know, that Christmas musical thing you showed me a while back, can you do a new one that I can make of the Christmas card and send out to my friends? And, you know, here's, here's some, here's some money for payment. So you got your Christmas, Christmas money and, uh, and that's how the, the spirit of Christmas was made that, you know, went on to tour the world and be the first sort of viral video when the internet was in its infancy, you know. Uh, so that came out, right? So Spirit of Christmas comes out. But meanwhile, you know, while we've been waiting for that, that long period of waiting for the, for Time Warp to go from the series pickup to just another pilot, we were out there pitching our gods mode, everybody we possibly could. Lots of meetings and lots of doors shut. Um, but then ultimately, we met Fran Kazui, who was director and creator of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And she really understood our sensibility. Um, and so uh, she and her husband, Kaz Kazui, they had this um, distribution company. They were like distributing, distributing all the, you know, Miramax and independent films to Japan. Um, that's where, you know, you got a lot of the Japanese influence. And that was, kind of, you know, meant to be because, you know, Trey had always had that obsession with Japan and that American history thing he won an Academy Award for was with his best friend who he'd met doing exchange program between Japan and the U.S. Junichi. So, um, anyway, so it's just kind of like a cool matchup. They had that Japanese connection. So, um, so Orgasmo went into production right or actually well then we get the news i guess that no yeah then um then the, then the, the south park pilot happened right so we go and cut out cartmans and trees and all that that's produced partially in la and partially in colorado um and that was just kind of a, a crazy summer as it were um because we were we were basically like learning the porn industry to you know kind of better understand what comedy we could bring forth. And we had this crazy friend, Farrell Timlake, who would organize all these porn shoots to happen um, at different places that we would be the crew members on. At the same time, we had, you know, Mormons coming over. But we, but after we, at this time, we, we, we'd given up on couch surfing and actually gotten our own apartment that by the beach. So that's, this was like a, a big deal for us, right? So we had a, we had a nice place to live finally. We're at couch surfing. Then we had other friends from Colorado start couch surfing at our place and, you know, um, finish, finish the pilot for South Park. And then, uh, and then I left working on the end of the South Park pilot to kind of start pre-production for Gasmo because we knew we had to get into production quickly because if South Park was to get picked up for a series, you know, it would be hard find a window to produce orgasmo so we were in a big hurry to get it going and um of course about halfway through in production of orgasmo 
Cloud Park got picked up for a series. I have to say that Aaron pilot, I mean, that still holds up. I mean, the whole Yupper song, I mean, it still haunts me to this day. It's right up there with Spadoinkel. It, it was a really fun one. I, I kind of thought it really kind of did just carry over the same spirit as Cannibal because we were able to like keep the set really loose. It was low pressure, you know, so we were able to just kind of like still have fun. And then, you know, when it came to Ram and Jewel, things got too serious and we were trying to do too many big things and it was just like a rougher go. But I, I still think that one's okay. It just, it's just, but it doesn't have, it doesn't have the same spirit as Aaron though. Did that ever get a legit release? No, none of neither of them have got really the funny the funny thing about Time Warped, right, is that the premise of Time Warped was it that they were these lost musicals from this like filmmaker of the fifties who was this great filmmaker. That was sort of the premise and that they'd been unearthed out of this vault and you were seeing them for the first time. And and that's sort of like in reality kind of what happened to those two those two pieces there by like the lost musicals of Trey Parker. You also worked on one called for goodness sake two can you tell me a little bit more about that we had just finished time warps right we just finished doing ramen jewel okay and we got a uh, train gets a call from david zucker from the zucker brothers um who are all major fans of of course um saying hey uh you know love your spirit of christmas and some of the other things he'd seen um can you direct um this this uh basically what it was is an industrial shoot right and um it was i'm not even really sure who we're being produced for but essentially uh it was an industrial video to show corporate people how to behave well at work it was sort of like values that you should learn like in kindergarten and first grade for corporate adults i guess um that's the best way i can describe it it was it was pretty bizarre, it, you know, it, the stars of the show were two very conservative talk radio hosts, um, Dennis Prager and Larry Elder. Larry Elder is the guy who just ran for governor against Newsom in, in Colorado, I mean, in California, um, during this recall and lost Marbley and, and uh, you know, um, but there are these two very conservative talk show guys. They're the, they're the center of it. And then there's all these, like, skits around it that are being cast by, you know, people that David Zucker knows. So it's like lots of like Saturday Night Live cast members. Like it was like, I don't know, Lorraine Newman. It was like, Ray, 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 who was it? Um, what's her name from the, you know, Mrs. Brady. Oh, Florence Henderson. Dick Van Patten is in it. I don't know. Just, just a lot of kind of funny, random celebrities are in it that were basically friends of the Zuckers who got the call saying, Hey, can you do us a favor? And, and do this thing, and we got the first-time director who's really funny, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, so Matt and I were first and second assistant directors on it, and we did this, I don't know if I even ever, I think I did see a, a final cut of it, because the trade cut, basically, was too funny. That was, that sort of, like, with the, that was the, the irony. The whole thing was that all the comedy that was put, put in there, it's like lots of silly train Matt performances, ultimately it all got cut out of the final piece because it just was sort of the comedy was like sort of too distracting from what their super basic message was which is basically like don't be a dick to people <laughs> like be sort of like be nice to people at work was like the long and the short of it i guess um but yeah it was really uh it was a kind of a really strange piece to kind of get our, our teeth cut on um 
but you know, it also, it was also, it was also when we were shooting that was also right when this crazy bidding war was happening for the South Park, right? Then MTV and Brillstein Gray and Comedy Central and maybe one other entity were all really excited about it. And we were all shooting this, you know, and unavailable and then people were going crazy and like, who are these guys? You know, that kind of thing. One of the, one of the things that was great about that time is that there's fake, fake credits at the end of, um, during a Christmas, you know, and that, that was another thing that really worked on just kind of like making Hollywood people go crazy, you know, just as like the mystery and trying to track down these, these, you know, mystery comedic filmmakers, you know, uh, that definitely added to the buzz, but finally kicked in. Before you got the green light for Gasmo, you made basically a fake trailer for it, uh, like a pitch for it. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that the fake trailer, that's, that's like my advice for any filmmaker. That's definitely how we got everything financed, you know, cannibal, the musical, we had a fake trailer that, you know, we took a weekend to go shoot it and it turned out to be like a really fun, just, you know, off the cuff weekend. And, you know, Trey went edited over the summer and came back in the fall and we had this trailer and people would show people the trailer and they'd be like, when's the movie coming out? You know? But it just really looked like it was done and coming out and people get excited. We're like, well, you know, um, you know, when's the movie coming out? Well, like that was a great way to like have an opening line to ask, um, people, usually friends and family, if they'd be willing to invest in such an endeavor. Um, but it was the trailer that really kind of gave people the belief that we could do it, you know? Um, so after a dozen, you know, fruitless pitch meetings in Hollywood, um, when we just had the script for Orgasmo and a couple of sketches, you know, we said, you know, let's do what worked before and go and shoot the trailer. So we shot the whole trailer. You know, by now we, we knew a bunch of porn stars through our friend Cheryl. So we, we got some, a few real porn stars. That was always like an important thing. We had to get some real porn stars, uh, to actually act. Um, and then, uh, and then it was just, you know, goofy, low budget superhero, you know, costumes that we, we scraped together. And I think we got, well, yeah, we got one of the, one of the porn stars is now the now fallen Ron Jeremy, but that was a big deal for us at the time, of course. And then, you know, a couple other name players like this, um, Bid the Star, Chasey Lane. And then, uh, you know, Brian Grayson offered us his Hollywood house to be like, cool with a view, uh, for some production values. And we were living in Playa del Rey and dressing up in these crazy costumes and running around our neighborhood. I'm sure our neighbors were wondering what the hell was going on when they, uh, showed a boy running down the street, you know, uh, in his, in his outfit. Um, the thing was about, you know, what it, we never even finished cutting the trailer for that. I think until the DVD came out, like way after the, the thing, you know, cause we had, well, we, what ended up being like kind of the great sales tool for us is just the photos from the shoot, you know? Um, and, and that, that's kind of, that was the thing that we, we brought to Fran Kazooie and we didn't even have the trailer done. And then once, Fran got a hold of it, you know, she, she definitely made the financing happen. And then by then too, you know, there, there, at least by then we, we didn't maybe need the trailer. I mean, we just need the pictures. And by then there was, there was buzz and there was, you know, that there, then the, you know, the show was getting picked up. So people were understanding that there's some legit talent kicking in here. To go from Cannibal the Musical being your first feature to now Orgasmo, Obviously, it's not, you know, Independence Day, but it feels like quite a leap to go from one to the next. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, again, well, we had those 
two fox sheets, which were were you know weren't weren't nothing. They weren't a feature, but they still like they were still like like a feature because they were you know a seven day shoot, you know, so you had to be that organized and and all that kind of stuff. And then when Orgasmo came in, you know, we got a larger crew and we got this guy Jake Rose, who was we we dubbed him Production Cock. Um, he was executive producer, and you know, so we we were able to even with a low budget movie, we were able to bring in some people who had more uh, production experience than we did to handle, you know, the things that were out of our league, you know. So, um, so, and then, you know, when those things are in place, then it just comes down to just the basics of filmmaking and acting and directing and stuff, you know, and, and obviously that's, that's where Trey shines in a big way. And, you know, um, Matt and I hammered out that script with him and went, did all the drafting with him, his backboards and stuff. And, um, you know, and we had a couple of years to work on that. Like at least for the orgasmo script, there was a lot of like downtime to, you know, and, and time to where we were waiting for shit to happen to have Mormons over to our house and, and, you know, and just like actually do the research for the film. Cause a lot of comedy really did come from the ridiculous research we did. Yeah. That dichotomy between Mormonism and the porn world is just so striking, but I love that, you know, you, kind of were you also using this story to talk about your early days of Hollywood. No, exactly. Yeah, no, <laughs> there is, you know, definitely, um, you know, yeah, there's definitely like Hollywood, you know, getting fucked in Hollywood message <laughs> come through loud and clear in orgasmo. And we were certainly experiencing that at the time, you know, um, for sure. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about Michael Dean Jacobs. I love Max Orbison and just how unhinged he is through the whole thing. Michael Dean, he is, he was basically, he was one of the guys that we just cast, you know, like, you know, we had like what we considered like our little like ensemble group from Colorado that was, you know, in Cannibal and Time Warped and, and Orgasmo. Um, but we had to, you know, dig deeper, you know, to fill out all the or Orgasmo parts. And, and Michael Dean was somebody that was, I think he was a stand-up comic, and he'd done a lot of, a lot of like uh, TV roles, um, and he was just somebody that that just kind of like hit the mark. And you know, the thing, this was the the funny thing was that originally Ron Jeremy was supposed to play that role. He was supposed to be Orbison, and in the trailer that never really got finished, Ron Jeremy is playing Max Orbison, and then. And, and, you know, and Ron at the time, he would always say like, cause Ron, the, the thing is, you know, Ron's story is, you know, it has a horrible ending. If you watched the news this last year, he sort of became this beast. He became, he became just master zero in real life, actually. Um, but, um, he would try to wine and dine every Hollywood director by bringing them onto a porn set. And he would try to get into a mainstream role. It was his dream to be a mainstream actor as much as possible. Um, but he would always get dinged by studio executives, you know, they'd be like, nope, you can't have him. Or he would get cut out at the last minute. So that was sort of like typical. And so, so sort of similar thing happened. He didn't get cut out of orgasmo, but he was supposed to play this leading role. It was the last, maybe I can't remember it was before we cast Michael Dean or met Michael Dean or after where Fran Kazoo was like, you know, we need to switch this out. And, and Trey was on board with that. I was, I was the one fighting for Ron. But, uh, but it, you know, thank God we did that switch because Michael Dean was much better and um, he didn't wear that same gnarly cologne that Ron Jeremy did. 
And I don't know, but you know, I'm not, I, I lost touch with Michael. I don't know. I don't know what he's doing now. It's been, it's been over 20 years since I've talked to him. Unfortunately, I think he passed away a few years ago. He did. Okay. But I'm, you know, I'm not surprised because he was, I don't know, he was probably in his fifties when we were doing that. So, and, and you know, Max Orbison was not the picture of health, but I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, tell me more about you and what was your experience being on this shoot? I mean, it was a crazy time for me personally. Um, and I was sort of like in charge of like, just like the crazies, I guess. That's sort of my experience with orgasmo. It was like, cause, um, just sort of by chance when Trey and Matt were working on spirit of Christmas, right? They got the spirit of Christmas money to go to Colorado. And I grew up in Northern California. So, um, I've been scoring these like ridiculous production assistant jobs. And so one of the production assistant jobs I got was for the British show called the good sex guys. And it was kind of like the HBO's real sex. And it was just kind of covering interesting, weird, quirky, bizarre stories about sex. And it, one of the MTV producers, now one of my, was one of my friends at the time now, Sarah West, she got me the PA gig. And then, and that sent me to all these, through all these crazy, like, sex experiences in California from like female circumcision activists to a female masturbation class and bondage. And, uh, I saw like, um, like in Hollywood, we had these, I don't know, just lots of bizarre stories. But then one, the one bizarre story that stuck was meeting this guy, Farrell Tim Lake, who would eventually be an associate producer of Orgasmo. And he had this video company called homegrown video. And, um, that was an amateur porn company. Farrell is the, kind of like weed smoking deadhead and i also um was a deep deadhead as well still am and so we we instantly bonded and um and then when i told him our interest in our gas well he was like so excited because he had some mainstream aspirations and acting and producing and all that kind of stuff as well so so it was like sort of feral and i organizing all the the porn quote porn air quotes porn research right and me doing some production of this and jobs up for him. Um, and so anyway, so when it came time to produce the Gosmo, that was like a, a big part of my role was dealing with all the talent, you know, and, and also the crew as well. The first six weeks of it, it was just kind of Fran Kazooie and I running pre-production and trying to find all the right costume designers and production designers um, and finding Jake Rose, production Cox to run things for us. Um, so, you know, it was kind of like, it was like a mixture of just like foreign shenanigans and stepping up to our first real, you know, sort of like over a million dollar professional shoot. What were some of the more difficult things about that shoot? Bridging the gap from being crazy students to being professionals, you know, and we had, of course, hired all of our friends to come out to Colorado. So we had like this one house of like Colorado dudes. Some of them weren't always showing the most amounts of professionalism you know there's like kind of those moments too where we're like some friends on craft service we're having to get a talking to um you know uh let's see you know it was really a pretty smooth shoot actually you know it's like but you know the hardest part is just always kind of getting the money and getting people to believe but once everything kind of came together i, I think our, our production was pretty smooth you know we definitely you know had the moment where shooting a fight scene I think a cup kicked our show deploy stuck double in the face and broke his nose. And he had to, you know, he had to leave set and, and amazingly, you know, we were able to find someone else to sub out. This was like at, you know, like midnight on a, a Thursday, you know, uh, 
but that's, you know, that's one of the bonuses of shooting in Los Angeles is that, you know, things go wrong, there's backups and resources and things like that. You know, of course, you know, in Hollywood, it's possible to find pumping German Shepherd, you know, and like that, that was, we thought that would be a lot harder to find. It was actually pretty easy. Probably, you know, the hardest thing, I don't know, there's, there's, there's that, that day where Fran had to ask T-Rex to please take a shower before her, her sex scene with Trey Parker. Trey really took one for the team on that one. I'll say that, you know, um, uh, you know, but, um, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty smooth, you know, it's like, I think, you know, I think that the hardest parts of orgasmo, you know, you know, were, were more in like big picture things, you know, where, where, you know, like just having to get it done quickly and having to figure out post-production, um, while South Park pre-production was starting, you know, there's a lot of overlap with, with those two productions. So that made it challenging, you know, just to get the film finished and out there. You know, and then and then to get distribution, and we actually had a pretty easy time getting distribution, but our ultimate distribution really, like, I mean, you know, our theatrical, it was it was a theatrical tanking if there ever was one. You know, you know, we went from having a premiere party at the or at the Playboy Mansion with Metallica playing and just sort of being like, you know, on the top of the world for a day, you know, to then having six million i think it was like a six million dollar release for 600 theaters and it was just a flat tanking in every city that's salt lake city lake city utah it held over for like six weeks or something and then like was like a with a box office match in salt lake and every place else it just was gone in and out that was definitely rough and sad for me I don't think Trey and Matt really gave a shot because they were d- deep into South Park at that point. And, and the other thing that was kind of crazy too for Goswell was that basketball came out. I'm pretty, I can't remember if I think I'm pretty sure it came out before Orgasmo because, you know, um, cause that just got made and then released by Paramount. But I, I'm not, I can't remember the exact timeline on that now, but, um, I'm pretty sure it was yeah, but basketball came out then Orgasmo. I might be wrong about that. Anyway, but Orgasmo's release sucked, and uh, fortunately it was discovered. Once it hit the late-night Cinemax, that's where it really found its audience, which kind of made sense because when we were trying to get it made, we always kind of compared it. Did we always first call it? It was like a, a comedy version of a, you know, a Cinemax, like a like a Showtime kitty movie, we called it. That was what it was. Like a Showtime kitty movie, but you never see titties. I just want to go back. You talked about how David Dunn had uh, broken the nose of Joda Boy's stunt double. Are you telling me that Dean didn't do all of his own stunts for the film? <laughs> Ian did not do all the stunts. Oh, you know, yeah. actually, you look really closely on uh, that one scene. You can see, but yeah, no, Dean, he did a lot of the stunts. I'll say, I'll say he really, he stepped up, you know, um, and, you know, because like Dean, Dean was a production assistant on the South Park pilot and on the South Park pilot, you know, that's when we were, we knew we were going to go into um, production and uh, we got this guy, Troy, to start training Dean over that summer. So we basically gave him like two hours off work a day to go train with this, this gnarly ninja guy uh, from Colorado and, uh, and so he had a little bit of training, but then, um, you know, guys like David Dunn, he's David Dunn's like a 
multiple black belt who runs his own school and is like, you know, a super duper badass, you know? So you got guys like him and then the, and so, um, yeah, so we, we, we had a, an amazing stunt team led by this guy, Critter and, and Atucci, and we had another, uh, designer, Phil, I'm not remembering his last name, but, um, but between the, between Critter and Phil, I mean, we, we had this kind of amazing stunt team. So, um, so, um, yeah, we did have, we had that one incident, but, um, other than that, um, you know, those guys kicked out. You were involved with lap dance. I think your company was at crap, crap, crap or crap TV. Yeah. Yep. yep. Were you also involved with trauma dance as well? Like I can give you the, the dance, the dance history, you know, as I spoke earlier, you know, it started when Trey and Matt and, uh, and company, you know, uh, uh, we, we crashed Sundance, right? That was the, that sort of really started the dance craze. Okay. Cause that got a lot of press. That got this MTV story, but it also got a couple of small news stories. And, um, it, you know, it really, it really it was like, as far as like promotional stunts, it, it, it rocked. So the, so that year, and, and then, then we ended up getting picked, the, the pilot picked up, but with one of my MTV producer friends, um, she and I were working on a concept called the Undance Film Festival. Um, and we were going to do that that following year. And then I kind of backed out because I got the pilot deal. Um, but that following year, six or seven filmmakers arrived at Park City and they banded together and decided to call themselves Slam Dance. And then Slam Dance, you know, is, is a mega force to this day. We're friends with all those guys. And then, so we missed that year that Slam Dance came together. But then I think it was, I think it was the following year, and I can't remember, the following year, two years later, that we brought Cannibal to premiere at Slam Dance. I think it was two years later. Cannibal, or did, I don't know if it premiered, I would know it didn't premiere at Slam Dance, but it played Slam Dance, and it happened to be the same year. Was it the same year? And Orgasmo, I think that was the year. I'm not, yeah, I think Orgasmo might have been in Sundance that year. And that's right. Orgasmo was in Sundance that year playing like the midnight movie. And we decided that year that we would do Undance. Okay. Okay. Um, and Undance was going to be a one film competitive festival. And so by then I'd formed craptv.com with, um, my sister and my friend Glasgow Phillips and Ward Robinson and, and others. And, uh, we had Glasgow's directorial debut called The Sound of One Hand Clapping, which you can stream online. And that's one of the best movies ever made. <laughs> okay, Art, you know the movie. Well, oh, God, yes. Okay, well, The Sound of One Hand Clapping was the sole entrant and also the grand winner of the Undance Film Festival. And the Undance Film Festival happened in a closet at Troma's Cannibal the Musical After Party. And that was part of Slam Dance. Okay. So that's where we birthed the Undance Film Festival. Okay. And then it was the Undance After Party where our lawyers at the time said, you guys should really do the Lap Dance Film Festival since you know everybody from our gals. And we thought that was the greatest idea ever. So the following year, we came back with Lap Dance and um, ended up doing Lap Dance three years in a row, which probably took couple years off my life um that was just kind of like an insane just an insane production because we were basically stuffing an entire film festival format into a party so um it was just like a multimedia bonanza with just lots of chaos and uh and lots of fun you know and lots of press you know which is which is uh 
Uh, that's what we're, we're looking for. Um, so Lloyd, being the hype beast that he is, he saw that all you needed to do was just put a dance behind your festival name and show up in Park City. And and really at Park City at this time, it was it was like, I call these film festivals barnacle festivals, you know, they just hook onto the big whale fest and ride along. So Sundance at that point had about 20 barnacle festivals, you know, um, and they were at that at, at a certain at a certain tipping point, they were all just kind of like borrowing from each other and stealing and stealing each other's audiences and competing and just fucking up Park City. And it was really festival anarchy. And uh, I, I, I loved it. You know, it was it was so much fun. And, you know, Lloyd would bring his cast of characters. And when we did lap, lap dance, you know, Robert Redford called us the lowest of lows. And we took that as a huge badge of honor. Because meanwhile, like, you know, again, we had porn stars and alcohol sponsors but we also were playing like avant-garde films and you know and celebrating new filmmakers and uptown upcoming talent and we were trying to you know we tried to break new things and just kind of you know fuck shit up on the mountain so to speak so so that was, it was a lot of fun but yeah the so lord got in there and you know and like he's still doing trauma dance right i don't i mean i don't, I don't know what the new one is but Lloyd's an unstoppable force of nature, and, and uh, he's taught me so many things um, about the power of independence. Tell me more about what you've been up to lately. I've been um, asked deep in the, the cannabis industry. Um, many years ago, started a, 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 a lifestyle art cannabis brand called Califari. And so that's, that's where my focus is now. I did, I, I did do an independent feature called The Shickles, in 2015 and i also you know i produced uh, electric apricot quest for festeroo with les claypool you know back in 2008 um that was the chance for me to make fun of everything i'd held sacred from you know great the grateful dead to burning man it's a mockumentary about a jam band and it's got uh matt stone and seth green that's doing cameos as well as uh bob weir from the grateful dead and warren haynes from government mule and mike gordon from fish and um, a few other cameos in there. That movie's still floating around, which I'm very proud of. But my joke for a while was, like, you know, I'm trying to get out of the entertainment industry and, you know, and into cannabis, but the entertainment keeps following me around. And what I've done now with Talifari is really kind of taken all my producerial, promoting, producing talents and, and thrown them at cannabis and art. And, and actually, you know, as I said in the beginning, like my parents are both artists and they have this art collective. And so I've sort of gone and followed in their footsteps and they were kind of riding like the psychedelic revolution. And I, I'm kind of creating art for the new cannabis revolution that's happening across the country and around the world. Every day we hear new things about hearing powers of cannabis and it's something that's been a, a positive force in my life. And so I'm creating this art series around it. It's been really rewarding. And, you know, we're, uh, we're sort of hoping that we're creating an international brand. We just, We've got a line of like skateboards and um, all kinds of different merchandise that we're starting to place in shops internationally and that we're really excited about and all around the country. Um, so that's that's been really rewarding and fun and um, exciting project. Thing that's hard about independent film is you're going from you know gig to gig. You know I think that's the hard part about indie filmmaking. And so it's nice to have a regular job, especially since. I have two kids now and, and all that kind of thing. So even though I'm working in cannabis, my life is much more stable and sane um, than it really ever has there, I'll say that. 
you know, because yeah, the indie, you know, and I, I did a bunch of touring um, with Primus because uh, it was my job to get uh, when we did the South Park pilot. It was my job to track down Primus to do the the soundtrack for the show. Um, and Les and I had become friends since then, and I got to art direct a lot of his his shows for New Year's Eve for a, for a spate of of years. And then my last job with 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 Primus was a classic because uh, I was. I got to work as Wonka Tech on Primus and the Chocolate Factory, which meant that I did their art direction and costuming and then made a movie with um, the drum tech dressed up as an Oompa Loompa in, um, I think, about 90 cities because we did, all, you know, we did like 60 cities in the U.S. and then we went to Europe. So um, that was quite an adventure to make a, a daily movie with an Oompa Loompa. Um, that was good. Is there a good site to keep up with you and keep up with the cannabis stuff? Yeah, I mean, Calafari.com, you can uh, you can check out where we're up to there. We've got over 60 original art designs that we sell as posters and skateboards and lighters and hats and what have you. So yeah, that's, that's the best place to find me or Calafari1 on Instagram or Jason McHugh2 on Instagram, places you can track me down. Well, Mr. McHugh, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Right on. Thank you so much. The sky is blue and all the leaves are green. The sun's as warm as a baked potato. I think I know precisely what I mean. When I say it's a spectacle day as I ride with my girl. Friend in the whole world, we belong. Set our goals high with eyes full of hope as we aim for the sky is blue and all the leaves are green. My heart's as full as a baked potato. I think I know precisely what I mean when I say it's a spectacle day. When I say all right we are back and we are talking about orgasmo and yeah we kind of started to talk about some other parker and stone works uh before we took that break and yeah, I'm I'm right there with you guys. I don't think I, I said this earlier, but basketball is definitely one of my favorites as well. And saw that opening weekend and have loved it ever since. I mean, you talked about the chemistry between those two guys, between Parker and Stone, and their whole argument where they just use the word dude. Oh, it's so good. It's probably one of the best things ever. Dude, 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 dude. Dude, well, I guess you've got a point there, dude. And just the the look, the and it's the same with with uh, with all of his movies. Just the looks they'll give each other, like when in that movie when Trey Parker and Matt Stone are fighting, and then Trey Parker comes back at the end, like before the big game, and the, that that like dramatic glare they give each other. Like it's one of the biggest laughs I get out of the movie. I I love it too, man. Like I'm so glad you guys do too, because 
it's it's one of those weird things that when I see the movie mentioned on television, it's usually in a negative light. But everybody I know in person is like us and they really like that movie. <laughs> there's a lot of jokes that I went over my head, I think, the first time I saw it. But I mean, there's a lot of just I mean, as with any of the uh, Zaz uh, movies or offshoots, there's just a lot of visual jokes that like, for instance, there's a scene where I think uh, Robert Von Tell's uh, McCarthy to go, hey, go clean this. And then the next scene she comes in, the ball bearing uh, or the ball hitch is totally clean and her lips are silver. So it's just like I didn't catch that the first time. And as I got older, I'm like, oh, oh, OK. Or just just Jenny McCarthy just getting here like, all right, go buff my floor. That whole running gag of him saying something completely dirty, but meaning literal like, oh, my floors could use a buffing. I'm going to go lay some carpet. I mean, talk about raunchy. There are some some just really good things in there. And just, I mean, that whole thing of them psyching out the other players and some of the things that they do, like the 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 milk from his nipple. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like the fake finger he has, like he's just cut off his own finger with a pair of scissors. Oh, or your, your mom's dating squeak. I mean, some of those jokes when they're playing the San Francisco team, it's like, oh, that really doesn't ring right right now. But okay, but he does in the movie, he does get a penalty for it. And yeah, that's another really quotable film. I mean, especially talking about Squeak and man, if you guys rag on me like 13, 14 more times, I'm out of here. You couldn't get a chick if you had a hundred dollar bill hanging out of your zipper. <laughs> she stands a better chance with Squeak. That's low, you son of a bitch. There, there was so much South Park entered into that. Another one is um, a, a newscast like, oh, he he was 73. His hairpiece was 52. Uh, yeah, I would love to see them do more films. It's like, please, just I can understand that uh, South Park is an empire and uh, I have respect for that. And I haven't watched it in a little while. It, it, I seem to kind of come and go with that show, but I absolutely love it. Love it every time I do. I mean, the whole thing that they had with uh, Canada building the wall to keep Americans out. I love that whole season. I thought that was fantastic. And I love that they're doing season-long arcs, or at least they were with that season. It was a whole arc rather than just individual shows and that they build on each other. Yeah, it feels like they've gone back a little bit to week-to-week uh, -week episodes. Um, I don't know. I, I haven't seen... I've been watching at the new season. I don't particularly remember anything overarching, um, but there is a great... <laughs> In fact, the, the newest episode, or one of the newest episodes, was uh, about Pajama Day, Um <laughs> And uh, it's an allegory for, you know, wearing your mask at the restaurant while you're walking to the table and then taking it off. The, um, I'm not I'm not doing it justice by describing it, but they basically make a connection between wearing pajamas and uh, wearing masks. Oh, yeah, I, that was really funny. And what what they did with Token this season, too, where it turns out his name is Tolkien. And everyone knew on the show, knew, all the characters knew his name was Tolkien, except for Stan. And Stan, when he finds this out, is saying to his friends, like, did you know his name's not Token, it's Tolkien? And they're like, yeah, we knew that. You didn't. And so Stan has this, oh my god, I'm really racist. <laughs> and you're right, like, this season, it, it has been really cool how they've had these seasons that have these overarching plots. And this one, this season is a bit more episodic, but there is some stuff where it seems like it's leading into some of the move, the South Park Paramount Plus movies that they're going to be doing. 
like a lot of stuff that they've set up with Randy this season. It wouldn't surprise me if some of that was in these like Paramount Plus movies that they're doing. Well, I, I'm just hoping they move away from the uh, the adult South Park. I, I got to say, I was not a fan of the last two uh, two Paramount movies, but yeah, I mean, I, I give them credit for swinging for the fences and trying something new, but it just didn't land for me. Yeah, I just I kept seeing those advertised, but I didn't really know what was going on with those. We enjoyed them. I mean, there there were some stuff that didn't work, but like there there was a lot of stuff that le- that really landed for us. Like a lot of them being with it having to do with the kids now being uh, adults. We really, I, I really like those that stuff a lot. There, there was some stuff that didn't work, but overall, I enjoyed them. There was definitely stuff I liked, especially um, you know I won't spoil it for those who haven't seen it, but like what Cartman becomes based. <laughs> Um, so, so there was stuff that di- that did work, but yeah, o- overall, I, I didn't care for him quite. I mean, the show has stayed consistently, um, has had a consistent quality, but those movies felt like a rush job. I have to tell you guys, I felt so old. I was talking with a guy that I worked with, and I had made a reference to uh, some sort of South Park joke because they're so easy to do. And it was pretty early on in the South Park days. It was probably like a season two or three joke. And he didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And then I realized, oh, you were born the year South Park came out. And wow, it's just, I felt like I should just go and grab my walker and scooch out of there. <laughs> it <was> so bad. <laughs> yeah, South Park was one of those things that like, um, when it came into the ether, I, I was dying to see it. Unfortunately, I lived in a, a small town that we didn't even get comedy set. We had cable, but they, we didn't get comedy central It was one of those stupid deals. Like that's also the reason why I'm, I'm a bit more of a, a Michael guy, a Mike guy when it comes to mystery science theater, because we didn't get sci-fi and we didn't get anything that carried mystery science until the sci-fi era. So this was something I was like, I, I finally was able to consume the first VHSs were like the compilation. Like I didn't even get to watch it and you know, for until season three or four on cable. I, the only thing I got to consume was the best of tapes they had out for a short time. Oh yeah, yeah, I had those. Those intros on there are funny. <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's they're sitting in front of a bearskin rug. <laughs> yes, and there's a different dog in each one. We were the, my friends and I. We started watching it at the beginning, and it was funny because let's see, I would have been when South Park started. I would have been either a, I was either I was in high school. I was either a freshman or a sophomore. And there, I went to a religious school and there was this brief period in season one where we could kind of get away with wearing South Park shirts to school because the teachers hadn't heard of it yet. <laughs> then uh, this is maybe halfway through season one, maybe after Mr. Hanky, I can't remember. Soon enough, they kind of caught on what this was and what we were all like crazy about. And then the memo came out. No more South Park shirts allowed at at Lutheran High School. (laughs) Well, it's so funny. That was during that era of when, you know, adult animation was becoming more of a a popular thing outside of like, you know, Spike and Mike festivals. But I mean, I even mean Simpsons was controversial in my household for a time, you know. Uh, Of course, I was raised Catholic, but... (laughs) So, because you can imagine how you know big a deal South Park was uh, in that household. I wasn't raised religious, so there there wasn't anything that was like controversial in our household. But I did go to religious schools, so there always was stuff there. Like in high school, yeah, it was South Park, and then when I was in grade school, when The Simpsons started, yeah, I, I remember like we weren't allowed to wear Bart shirts, and then after South Park in high school, I was wearing a Bart shirt. And 
the gym teacher looked saw it and looked at the assistant principal and goes, "Oh, hey, he's a, do we care about Bart anymore?" And the assistant principal goes, "No, nah, he's like, no, nah, Bart's fine. He can wear Bart shirt." <laughs> I guess I was very lucky because the Simpsons started up the first, I think the Christmas special with uh, Santa's Little Helper was when I was still in high school, maybe, but for sure the seasons proper started when I was just a freshman in college. So that was like that. And then South park being what about, uh, seven years later, I guess it was just fit so naturally. And then be with some butthead in between there, you know, it just, it felt like it was a real movement going on into this frontier animation, which was fantastic for me. I loved it. Oh yeah, my my I would watch it with my family, <laughs> like The Simpsons and be not not so much South Park. Well, my, my mom kind of liked it okay, but my dad wasn't really into it. So South Park, I was kind of watching by myself or with friends. But Beavis and Butthead, oh yeah, that was as controversial as all that stuff was in my schools at home. Oh no, it was like family viewing. <laughs> I can never quite figure out where my mom drew lines. Like I, I had to sneak watching Beavis and Butthead, but like one time I rented of all things time cop and a sex scene came on and like, I had to shut that off. Now cut to a year or two later, I convinced my brother to rent showgirls and I threw it on at like three in the afternoon. And I'm not damned. If not every member of the household, like came in at some point, we all kind of sat and watched showgirls as a family. So I, I, I can never understood where my mom drew lines as to what's appropriate and what's not. It was uh, in our household. It was like we would watch anything. I remember watching Basic Instinct with my mom when it first came out <laughs> and uh, Body of Evidence. <laughs> the two is now, now that we're talking about watching weird movies with moms, the two weird experiences I had was uh, I watched Leaving Las Vegas with my mom in the theater. I don't we Nicholas Cage has just won the Oscar and. We thought, hey, that'll be a fine movie to watch, Mother and Son. <laughs> they had not, not really. And then, she, of all things, she ruined Titanic for me. Now, you got to remember, I'm a teenager when this comes out, and there's the scene with Kate Winslet. You know, everybody knows what that is. And all my mom, my mom leaned over to me, and she's got saggy boobs for her age. And my aunt, she's a prize <laughs> mom. You will ruin this. Oh, I'm sorry. I did also see Eyes Wide Shut with my mom because I was just a hair under the appropriate age to get in on my own. <laughs> Oh, I did too. I uh, yeah, my mom and I went to go see that. Same with Boogie Nights. I can't remember what else, but but a lot, quite a bit. We would we would go see everything. <laughs> but it wasn't weird to me. Like that's just how I was. It was just normal for for me. Like it wasn't. It wasn't like I was sitting there like oh, you know like sweating like this is awkward. Like no, no, that was just normal. It was just like yeah, we went to go see everything. <laughs> I do love all the trauma love that he has too, because I love trauma. Like I, I love, love, love Lloyd Kaufman, and I just—he's just the nicest guy. And I, Toxic Avenger is one of my favorite movies. So all the trauma love that they have, even for you know, of course, Cannibal being distributed by him, but even them popping up in cameo, get cameos like Terror Firmer, and then Lloyd in this movie as well. So I love little things like when they're at the video store. And in the classic movie section is a bunch of trauma movies. Yes. Yeah, I did notice that, too. I feel like, you know, talking earlier about the the little uh, jokes he'll throw in just uh, off camera dialogue. I feel like a lot of that does come from trauma movies. Like, I want to say it was class of Newcomb High. There's a scene that kills me every time where it's like, hey, let's go to the Federico Fellini Festival. <laughs> like, just something off the wall that doesn't fit, but 
does in this universe. Oh yeah, that's yeah, that is very very true. Because trauma movies, especially those eighties ones, the dubbing is always really funny. Like it's part of the joke. Like the Toxic Avengers voice in the first movie, especially when you first hear it, it's a good genuine laugh when it's that just that deep, obviously ADR voice. I think one of the first trauma films I saw was that um, one that was, what was an, an Indonesian film, the fabulous female fighters or whatever, where they just redubbed the whole thing. That's right. I forgot about the, yeah, yeah. I, uh, toxic Avenger is probably the first one I saw. Cause they would show those on Cinemax a lot. I was so offended when they backed over that kid's head. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, that's why you should have rented the R rated version. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. But David and Brad, what is going on with you guys? David, what's been keeping you busy? Um, you can hear me weekly on the Binge Watchers podcast. Right now we're in the middle of um, what we call March, our own version of March Madness, which is basically movies about people literally going mad. Um, we're about to tackle Possession. We're about to record an episode on Possession. It won't be as quite as in-depth as Projection Booth. If you want the real stuff, go to that episode. But eh. We'll just be having fun talking about what we liked about that movie. So yeah, it's Binge Watchers podcast. And Brad, how is life as a cinema snob? Uh, I'm still trying to get over all the cognitive stuff I got going on with having COVID a few months ago. <laughs> but other than that, I'm still doing the cinema snob. <laughs> less, I'm doing less vlogs, but I, I spent a lot of years doing a lot of mainstream stuff on the cinema snob when I started out doing more exploitation stuff. And now I've gone back to a lot of that really fun obscure exploitation stuff like i used to do so i've had episodes on like thunder warrior and a lot of italian knockoffs so i'll i'll have a lot more of those uh coming up thunder warrior is a trilogy so i gotta get to those other two as well would i be able to watch second if i hadn't seen the first Yes, because the second one is one of those movies where it's got the same actors, but they're play, but a few of them are playing different characters. <laughs> like, was this an existing script? You just threw the same actors in, and <laughs> imagine if Rambo: First Blood Part Two had Rambo as a cop going to work for the sheriff's department, still run by Brian Dennehy, but Dennehy was playing a different character. That's what Thunder Warrior 2 is. <laughs> Where's the best place for people to keep up with you? Oh, you can see our archive site at thecinemasnob.com. Also on YouTube, where our our main channel on YouTube is uh, Stoned Gremlin Productions. So you can find us on there. Or go to YouTube, type in The Cinema Snob. We'd be the first thing that came up. Well, thank you so much, guys. And thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
man Is it the woman in his arms Just cause she has big titties Or is it the way 